This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by Roger Ver. Uh, Roger has been called Bitcoin Jesus. I know he doesn't like that title because I, I once heard him say he didn't really like how things turned out for Jesus. <laughs> um, hopefully, Roger uh, will not get crucified. Uh, sometimes I, I see him crucified on Twitter from time to time. He's one of the earliest investors in Bitcoin. Um, he not only buying Bitcoins themselves, but investing in almost every Bitcoin company. He's the CEO of Bitcoin.com. He has invested in just about all the major players on the cryptocurrency scene, and he is a tireless advocate for Bitcoin. Uh, Roger, thank you so much for taking the time to join me all the way from Tokyo. Thank you, Isaac. So I want to ask you about sort of before Bitcoin, because I read, I think it was in the book Digital Gold, I read that you first heard about sort of digital currency or cryptocurrency, the idea, sometime in the late 90s, and immediately, this is before Bitcoin was around, you were really excited by it. I want to ask you, what underlying philosophy did you have that made you immediately interested in that? Uh, well, I guess it was my underlying philosophy as, as being a libertarian and I became a libertarian from studying economics and the the more economic freedom an area has the higher the standard of living and the faster the rate of economic growth is and so I saw digital currencies as being a way to bring more economic freedom to the entire world which would then bring more economic growth and more economic growth means more cool you know cell phones and flying cars and supercomputers and things like that that the the science fiction loving nerd in me was really excited uh, about and you know I I want to see missions to Mars, you know, sooner rather than later. And the best way to do that is through more economic growth year after year. So, and you know, all these science fiction books, they already had this online anonymous digital cash that people were using. When Bitcoin came along, it was like, yes, finally, this thing that I had read about, you know, as a kid is is, is finally here. It's finally coming to existence. Somebody finally did it. So, uh, it was off to the races with me to do everything I possibly could to promote its adoption. Uh, and speed things up and, and, you know, try and make all these wonderful changes and benefits to the world happen sooner rather than later. And uh, that brings us to today, I guess. What, what, what got you started on studying economics? So it was kind of, uh, I, I kind of just stumbled into it, to be honest. So I think it was probably the summertime between maybe seventh and eighth grade or eighth grade and freshman year in high school. And my mother told me I wasn't allowed to play any more video games for the day. I had to find something to do other than video games. And so I wandered on over to the bookshelf and was looking for a, a book to read since I couldn't play any more video games. And the book that I was lucky enough to pick up at the time was uh, Socialism by Ludwig von Mises. Oh, and at the time, I had, yeah, I had no idea who Mises was. I, I had never heard of the Austrian School of Economics well, I and could when barely I up, read at that age, so you were way ahead of me to begin with. <laughs> Although, to be fair, when I picked up the book, I, I thought it was a pro-socialism book. <laughs> and I, I, I knew that Americans were kind of supposed to be against socialism, but I didn't really even know what socialism was. But I figured I would read this pro-socialism book to hear the other side of the argument and at least understand what these other people thought. And uh for anybody that's read that book, you, it basically it points out that you know prices transmit information, and without the pricing mechanism, you have absolutely no idea what raw materials should be used to produce what consumer goods, and it 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 lays it out plain and simple that socialism it can't even work in theory, let alone in practice. So in even in theory, it's impossible for it to work, and in, in practice, it's you know absolutely impossible to work. So. And from that book, it was like, wow, what an interesting way to learn more about the world. And I just picked up one economics book after another, after another, after another. And it uh, you know, became the, a passion of mine for the next decade. And I read just about every economics book I could get my hands on. And uh, you know, growing up in Silicon Valley and being around computers from a, a young age and running one of the most popular bullet, bulletin board systems in Silicon Valley way back in the day uh, – I guess gave me the perfect background to appreciate Bitcoin when it came along and, and be excited about Bitcoin because I had the computer science background and the economics background to really grasp just how, how important this was going to be. And here we 
are. Uh, you know, it's a world. It went from nothing to a worldwide phenomenon. And uh, you know, as we're recording this, uh, it's hitting all-time new highs of over five thousand two hundred dollars today. So that's pretty exciting as well. Yeah, one thing that I I love that you know you sort of bring to the Bitcoin scene, all all the people who are involved in this and who you know talk about it a lot, who are really deep into it, um, is that entrepreneurial side. You are. I mean, I can't even keep up with all the projects that you're constantly a part of, on the board of, investing in, whatever, to whatever capacity. You're clearly, you've got the economic understanding and passion, you understand the the technology, but it's that the skin in the game that I respect and I value what that means when you're not just interested in it purely for technical reasons or purely for ideological reasons. You've got both of those, but you also have skin in the game and you're putting your money where your mouth is in more ways than one, not only with buying Bitcoin, but investing in it. Um, and I think that gives a, a unique perspective. So but I have to ask you before we get into Bitcoin more deeply with that, clearly that relentless entrepreneurial hustle that you have, um, some may call it an addiction. It, it clearly began young. So I've got to ask you about your, your youth in the seedy underbelly of the American crime world. Weren't you, weren't you doing some business that the U S government frowned upon once upon a time? So like, like many young teenage boys, uh, I liked fire fireworks and, uh, I found in Cabela's sporting goods catalog that they were selling a product called the pest control report 2000, which is basically a firecracker, uh, supposed to be used by farmers to scare birds away by, you know, making a loud noise, uh, and scare animals out of their, you know, cornfields or whatever. And so uh, I bought some of those. My, my parents had a ranch. and We would go down there and, you know, set them off and drive around and shoot guns and do that sort of thing. Uh, and then I noticed that I could sell these exact same products on eBay for more than I was buying them from, from Cabela's. And uh, this was way back in 1998, 1999, 2000. I sold them for a couple of years. This was back when eBay had a guns and ammo section. Uh, and there were tons of people selling all sorts of different fireworks. So it wasn't anything abnormal at all. And so I sold these on, on eBay. Uh, didn't have a permit. The company I was buying them from had no permit. The manufacturer had no permit. All of that was no problem whatsoever uh, until I made the mistake of running for California State Assembly as a libertarian and espousing all sorts of libertarian views in uh, various debates with the Republican and Democratic candidates and that sort of thing. And then uh, I managed to be the only person in the entire nation to be prosecuted for selling this product without a permit. And even while I was being prosecuted and even while I was in prison, the company that had been selling them to me was still selling them and still and didn't have a permit and it was no problem for them at all. So, so this is uh, something being sold at Cabela's and you ended up actually serving time in prison for selling it. That's right. So that if you have an old amazing. maybe 1999 uh, Cabela's sporting goods catalog, uh, you'll you'll see it. Uh, you know, it was called the Pest Control Report 2000. It was listed right there in the in the catalog, and they would gladly sell it to anybody who wanted to buy it. That uh, I think had to be over 18 or something to that what, effect. What was it? I mean. How long were you in prison and, and what was that like? Um, so I, I had a 10-month sentence total. So I did nine months in federal prison and one month in Oakland halfway house. And to be honest, for the most part, it was really, really, really boring <laughs> every day. But there would be occasional moments of way, 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 way more excitement than you would ever want to have in your life. And the excitement that you have there is the bad kind of excitement, not the, not the good kind of excitement. But for the most part uh, – I just laid around reading books uh, every day. And initially, I continued to study economics and, and read books on that sort of thing. But it was actually became a bit too depressing for me to read more of those sorts of books while I was in that sort of a position, you know, in yeah, the, in custody for the, not really having done anything wrong. The more you read um, about, you know, the, the way the state operates and the way the market ought to operate while well, you've got the, the literal shackles of the state on your wrist might be good. <laughs> so I came across that backstory because somebody, like I said, Twitter, this is pretty new to me. I mean, I've been interested in Bitcoin and, and following it and, and for a number of years, but sort of the the people who are, you know, the developers and all the people who are very vocal on Bitcoin on Reddit and Twitter sort of newer to following them. And it's and it's quite a wild, crazy game full of uh insults and strong opinions. And somebody on Twitter, I think I mentioned you and someone said, um, oh, he's a felon. And I was like, what? And so, and so I looked it up and I was like, felon? He's an entrepreneur. <laughs> that's amazing. That's, uh, that's a great story. Uh, I'm sorry you had to suffer that. But um, 
good for you for uh, being able to um, proceed boldly uh, despite having dealt with the state in such a, a brutal way in the past. So let me ask you about the when you first discovered Bitcoin, and I've I've heard you mention this several times. You were basically like up for days on end because you couldn't you couldn't sleep. You were so excited, so much so that you ended up getting sick and having to go to the hospital and get an IV to sort of bring <laughs> bring yourself back because you were just lost in it, not eating, not you. You were so excited. So you you explained the sort of economics, the philosophy that you held that made you latch onto it. But what was it about? Bitcoin specifically, was there something different versus other things? There have been sort of other efforts like DigiCash and different stuff um, in the past to kind of have a a, a, a true market um, currency. Was there something about Bitcoin that really you saw this is different? Yeah. So um, at the time, everybody assumed Bitcoin was completely anonymous. Uh, and from looking at the architecture of the way the Bitcoin network was set up, it was pretty clear that it was not censorable. So now, and the supply was limited. So you have those three things: you have anonymous digital cash that can't be censored, can't be shut down, can't be turned off, and it works for anybody anywhere in the world with the internet. Uh, that is the most powerful lever the world has ever had to bring more economic freedom to the entire world. Uh, so you have that plus the internet together. And it's game on for more economic freedom for everybody, you know, in the entire planet. So, uh, as a libertarian, of, of course, I want to see that happen. So, uh, it, you know, it's a true story. I was so excited about this that, uh, and I'm someone that you know needs a, a good night's sleep every night. But I stayed up all night, 100% reading every single thing I could find out about it. Stayed up all day the next day, and finally fell asleep maybe around 4 p.m. the next day, and then got up at like 6 p.m. So I only slept for like two hours. And then kept reading about it more and stayed up all night the next night and then went to bed at maybe, I don't know, 10 a.m. the next day and only slept for another maybe hour and a half or two hours and got up again and read as much as I could. And I didn't leave my house. I just called and had you know food delivered and did nothing but read about Bitcoin. And that went on for about a week until all of a sudden I got so sick and I was too sick to even drive myself to the hospital. I had to call a friend of mine and ask him to take me. And they uh, he took me to the hospital and they gave me some sort of sedative that, you know, knocked me out for, I don't know, maybe close to 20 hours. And I slept maybe 20 hours straight and then, but woke up again and had some more to eat and was right back to, to Bitcoin. And here we are, uh, almost seven years later and it's still been Bitcoin all day, every day, uh, for that entire seven years. And it went from, you know, being less, when I first heard about it, it was, you know, less than 10 cents. And, uh, here we are. And, and today it's, you know, this worldwide phenomenon that's on the cover of, you know, Forbes and time and, you know, Every publication, you know, almost every day has uh, articles about Bitcoin at this point. So it's pretty exciting to see just how quickly the the progress has been made. Well, and and you know, you did something I think pretty pretty impressive that you already had a very successful business uh, at this point. And if I understand correctly, not only did your business start accepting Bitcoin, I think you were the first business to be accepting Bitcoin. Um, but you basically shifted all of your energy towards Bitcoin and Bitcoin related businesses, which is which is pretty amazing because I can say, oh, I remember hearing about Bitcoin at some conference in 2010. Somebody talked about it and I thought the idea sounded intriguing. And then in 2011, I had some friends who had some and they were telling me about it. And then I was like really hooked and I was like, this is amazing. But I didn't do anything. In fact, I even had, you know, everybody probably has these stories now. A couple people say, oh, set up a wallet. I'll send you like 10 Bitcoin, you know, and I was like, "Eh, I'll get around to it. I'll get around to it. You know, so I didn't actually I didn't actually just set up a wallet and buy some Bitcoin until 2012 and let alone, you know, put anything, put, put my business on hold or anything. So I can say, oh, as a libertarian, I was so excited about it. But really you putting so much skin in the game immediately um i think i think speaks volume to either your risk tolerance your intelligence uh your commitment something maybe maybe i'm not sure probably maybe a, lot a combination of, of all of those <laughs> yeah so you've seen tons of ups and downs with bitcoin clearly it's gone you know from 10 cents it's shot way up you've had the uh, mount gox collapse you've had all all kinds of different stuff and I'm sure you have run into, as this Bitcoin evangelist for years and years, you've probably run into a lot of objections and objections from people who share your desire for better money, not having you know government-controlled fiat. Um, I want I want you to 
to give me uh, a few answers to some of those common objections. Actually, let me back up. First, do you have like, what's Bitcoin in an elevator pitch? What's your elevator pitch for Bitcoin? If someone hasn't heard of it and they say, Roger, what is this? What's your, what's your quick pitch? So uh, the short answer is that Bitcoin is money, but it's the best form of money the world has ever seen because you can send and receive it with anyone anywhere in the world instantly, basically for free. And there's nothing anybody can do to stop it. Nothing, nobody can freeze your account. Nobody can seize your funds. Uh, and if you're careful with how you use it, it can be done privately or anonymously as well. And so that gives it all the characteristics that make it the best form of money the world has ever seen. And uh, ironically enough, this kind of ties back into my prison experience. So I, I've been reading all of these economics books on the theory of the origin of money and how something comes to be used as money. And I was pretty convinced by the theories in these books about how it's some commodity good that's durable and easily recognizable and easy to transport and easy to store uh, and naturally comes to be used as money. And I was convinced by the theories in the book. But then when I was in prison and I got to see the, the prison economy right before my eyes and how things that had those characteristics like tobacco or postage stamps or top ramen soups – naturally come to be used as money within the prison economy, I was able to see firsthand with this empirical evidence that the theories in the books are true. And so then when I heard about Bitcoin for the first time, I knew people were going to start using it for money because it had all these amazing characteristics that made it incredibly useful as money. So there was absolutely no doubt in my mind that people were going to start using Bitcoin as money. So I knew my job, step one, was to buy a bunch of Bitcoin and step two was to build a bunch of the software tools to make it even easier for people to use Bitcoin as money. And that, that brings us to where we are today. And uh, Bitcoin is being used all over the world by people as money. OK, so that's a good place to start with some of the, the common objections that I hear. So, you know, some people who are even very familiar with things like Carl Menger's Origins of Money and some of the um, some of the free market, especially Austrian economists, you know, theories about what money is and how it emerges. And there's common a common claim that, well, something first is usable as uh, it's a commodity. It, it has a, a use value. So gold is It has is to be used, a consumer good first. Yeah, yeah, and ornamentation or shells are useful for something, whatever. Arrowheads, you know, there's there, it, it's used first and then, only then does it become money. And I've heard people object that outside of use as money, Bitcoin has no other use. So... There's sort of nothing, nothing that gives it a use value apart from its exchange value. What what is your response to that objection? Um, so I guess there's there's two responses. So there are plenty of other uses for for Bitcoin and the blockchain other than the money alone. So people are using it for you know time stamping all sorts of stuff or or you know proving all sorts of various things. Um, but I've thought about this question a lot, and let's say we even assumed that Bitcoin didn't have any other use case. It still has all the other characteristics that make it useful as money, which maybe means that some of those other theories like uh, you know, Mises regression theorem, maybe they're wrong. Um, I, I don't think they are. I, th I think Bitcoin has other non-monetary use cases that bootstrapped it into being used as money. Um, but it has all the characteristics that make it so incredibly useful as money that as we've seen right before our eyes, people just naturally started using it as money all over the world. Uh, and at first it was for things that were, you know, forbidden by governments for the most part, like the Silk Road. Uh, but now it's for anything and everything. So what, um, you know, when people say, well, isn't it, isn't it a Ponzi scheme? Because, you know, everybody who owns it wants more people to buy it because then the value will go up and the value will only go up if more people keep buying it. But really at the end of the day, like it's just going to collapse. It's just, it's tulip mania. It's all speculation. It's it's a big Ponzi scheme. Um, what do you say to those people? Um, so those people are right if those same people are advocating that Bitcoin shouldn't be useful as money and it should just be used as a store of value only. Uh, and so I, I would argue that Bitcoin can't be used as a store of value or won't be used as a store of value if it's not able to be used in commerce as well. So I know we don't want to get too deep into the whole scaling debate um, on Bitcoin, but there's a whole group of people – to think that Bitcoin doesn't need to be able to be used in commerce and that it will simply be uh, a store of value alone. And if that's what you're trying to do, I, I do think it's a tulip mania and, a, and you know just a bubble and a bit of a Ponzi scheme at that point. It needs to be able to be used in actual commerce in order for it to also be used as a store of value. So it, it, it can't be uh, solely a store of value. It has to be both of those things or it will be neither. 
Very interesting. Yeah, we, I, I definitely want to get into that, um, a, a little bit more. Um, before that, a couple maybe more simple objections. The the objection that look, how can Bitcoin ever be used for money when it's so volatile? The price just fluctuates so much, so rapidly. Um, no one, no one, you know. There's just if you're a merchant, you know, you're not going to want to accept it because you don't know what it's going to be worth in t- 20 minutes. Is that a temporary thing, or is that something that um, you know there's some sort of a fix for that. What, what, what's your take on the volatility? Um, that's a complete non-argument. The empirical evidence have, has already proved that wrong. Uh, Bitcoin is used to move more money every single day than PayPal at this point. So uh, the fact that people are using it as money proves that people are using it as money. So hmm. the fact that the price is volatile, yeah, that can be annoying for for some some commerce uh, and commercial applications. But the fact that it's so incredibly useful as money. Uh, overcomes the the downside that the price is volatile. And for me, I want to be exposed to as much of that volatility as I possibly can because the long run trend has been up, 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 up because it's so incredibly useful as money. And uh, I think that's going to continue so long as Bitcoin continues to be useful as money. So so there are, and I've heard you say this before, uh, and I know um, one of the founders of Bit, BitPay I was talking with and their primary, you know, one of their primary things is helping businesses um, you know, move money across the globe in, you know, hours for 1% uh, instead of, you know, in six to eight weeks for 10% or whatever it is, if you're not using Bitcoin. So I know that that's one of the uses sort of large transfers, um, business to business, but I've heard you, I've heard you say that, you know, Bitcoin is being used all over the world in a lot of, in a lot of places, in a lot of ways. What are some of the things that people are currently doing with Bitcoin in terms of using it for transactions? Uh, that's the beauty of the free market is there's the you know billions of people around the world and they can all use Bitcoin, however it is that they want to use it. So for me, you know, occasionally I, I you know do online shopping on Amazon using Purse.io where I'll buy hotel rooms or airplane tickets with Bitcoin. And uh, you know, at Bitcoin.com we have I think over 60 people on the payroll at this point, and all of them get paid in in Bitcoin uh, SegWit or Bitcoin Cash, uh, their their choice. Uh, you know, we, we use it for all sorts of payments all day, every day. We paid for our uh, minor hosting fee earlier today. We paid a whole bunch of Bitcoins, you know, cross-border international payments done, uh, settled in a matter of minutes, which is, uh, you know, wasn't possible before Bitcoin. So what if the, so I've heard, I've heard this and this is sort of a, this is sort of a Keynesian objection um, that, well, if the value, Bitcoin has a limited supply, 21 million will, is all that will ever be mined. Um and so if it's used, uh, the price will continue to go up because of this. And so no one will want to spend money. Everyone will, will save their money. Or if you're a Keynesian, you'd call it hoarding. Everyone will hoard their money. And therefore, the economy will collapse. There'll be no you know, um, velocity of money. Everyone will just be sitting on it. You, know, you pay your employees in Bitcoin, and they're never going to buy anything because they're like, well, it'll be worth more next week than this week. Um, and then we're all going to have this you know, economic catastrophe. Uh, how do you respond to that? Uh, so those are people that think that are people that don't understand economics, and they're also people that don't look at the reality right before their eyes. People are using Bitcoin to the tune of you know hundreds of millions or maybe even billions of dollars a day uh, in commerce. Uh, so the fact that they are using it as commerce and they are spending it means that that argument's a complete non-argument. And it's just ridiculous. If you think in your own life, um, you know that electronic items like you know computers and cell phones and things like that, you know they're going to be cheaper and better and faster a year from now than they are today. So by that logic, you would never, ever, ever buy a new computer or never, ever, ever buy a new cell phone because you know you're going to be able to get a better one for less money in a year from now. But of course, that's not true. People uh, you know, have a time preference. They want that new computer now, even if they could buy a better one for less money next year. And the, the same is true with Bitcoin. People are using it all the time in commerce. Yeah, that's, that's actually a great analogy because it helps – you see that there's always, um, you know, the market will always adjust to these things. So the, you know, I always want the newest iPhone, but I always know if I get the newest one, you know, in a year, there'll be another one that's even better. Maybe I'll wait for that one and I'll let my phone get maybe a generation or two behind, but I won't let it get like 10 generations, right? I'm not, I'm not still using the iPhone three or whatever, you know, um, because there's the incentive. It's like, well, I don't want 
I'm, I'm not going to just put everything on hold for forever. Like the the idea that somehow people saving their their money or using their currency as a store of value that that's somehow dangerous or bad. I I think that's just a remnant of most of us alive today have never lived in a world where our money wasn't constantly depreciating. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's, it's actually pretty normal historically, um, places where, you know, the price of goods continues to go down relative to the price of money and saving is, um, you know, naturally incentivized by the market. And uh, there's all kind of mechanisms. If you want people to spend more, you can induce them to spend more, just like you can induce them to save more with, with interest rates. But just we've had, we've been in such a long stretch of artificially stimulated spending that I think people are like, have a hard time mentally adjusting. But what's funny about economics is like, okay, I have a hard time imagining that world and understanding it from an argument standpoint. But the minute that that world exists economically, even if I don't understand it, I start behaving accordingly because we're so attuned to what's in our self-interest. And that's one of the things I love about Bitcoin is you don't have to win people over with economic theory necessarily. They just have to act in their self-interest and they're going to want to to utilize it whether or not they understand or care about the the economics behind it. Um, so what what if there's like a solar flare and the entire electric grid goes down? Does that kill Bitcoin since it's all digital? Uh, that's a problem for Bitcoin, but that's a problem for the U.S. dollar and the euro and everything else. You think your bank records are aren't stored or stored electronically, or all your credit cards or all that stuff? So uh, everything's going to ground to a halt if that uh, happens. But uh, it might be a good idea to keep a you know a backup of your Bitcoin wallet on a piece of paper, or if you want to keep it on a USB drive, you can buy uh, Faraday bags off of uh, you know Amazon, and uh, you know put your USB drive in a Faraday bag so it'll be safe against the solar flare too. That, that's one of those things that I always find funny too. Like, Hey, well, you know, if the internet goes down or whatever, if my, if my money is there, am I going to lose it? And you know, there's some level of risk there, but when you think about the banking system, um, you know, your, most of your money doesn't actually exist if you want to go get it in cash dollars. So if the, the digital system there all goes down, uh, as well, it's not like, Oh well, I'll just go to the vault and they'll hand over the balance that's <laughs> that's left in my account because it's not in the vault. Um, so I want to talk about the the idea of centralization, and this will probably get into the scaling debate that's going on right now with Bitcoin. And for those who aren't familiar, I'm not going to get into a whole lot of it. But um, as Bitcoin has grown in use and popularity, the um, it's taking longer to confirm. Um, you know, confirm um, currency or transactions with Bitcoin and the fees are higher. And that's because what are called blocks of information that 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 have all of the transactions and the record of what's happening on the blockchain are getting full because there's more and more transactions in them. And sort of up till this point, the blocks have, as they've gotten close to getting full, they'll they'll create larger and larger blocks that will be like built into the code so that people are mining larger blocks of information so they can fit more transactions to keep the speed and the and the fee speed up and the fees down. And now there's a big debate about whether or not to raise the block size or to keep it low. And it's it's almost I'll hold off on this for a minute. But it's almost like a debate about whether Bitcoin should become should compete with gold or should it compete with cash. Um, and we'll get into that in a minute. But part of that debate is this idea of centralization. So Bitcoin is often called a decentralized um, currency. And it's part of this trend of like decentralizing everything, you know, YouTube comes along and it's the decentralization of entertainment. It's no longer captive to CBS and NBC where we get our entertainment and whatever. And then, and so everything is being decentralized with software and this is decentralized money, but can Bitcoin be centralized? There are miners who mine it. And if bigger and bigger mining pools begin to mine it, is is this now a centralized currency that only a very small number of miners are in control of? The developers, it's open source, but there's a group called the core developers that sort of are the, the lead um, developers that are maintaining the code and making changes to it. And they've got sort of GitHub and their Reddit threads and stuff. Is that centralization? Do they have control of this? Is it centralized? You you still you still also have some pain points of centralization where if you want to move in and out of fiat currency into Bitcoin, um, you know you could uh, governments could easily control 
um, those gateways that let you get on and off the blockchain with with fiat currency. So there's a, there's sort of multiple fronts on which Bitcoin could be construed as something that's centralized or censorable or controllable. What are your thoughts on that? So I think a lot of people get confused and they think that decentralization is a goal in and of itself. And I don't think it is. I think decentralization is simply the tool that we use to achieve censorship resistance. And censorship resistance is the goal. And you only need enough of the tool of decentralization in order to achieve the goal of censorship resistance. Hmm. And so I see lots and lots of people on the internet saying, I'm sorry, saying decentralize this, decentralize that. We need 100% decentralization for everything. But I, I think that's nonsense. You only need enough decentralization to maintain the censorship resistance. And I think one of the best ways to give Bitcoin more censorship resistance is to get more people across the world using it, more businesses using it, more banks using it, more individuals using it, more off-roads and on-roads between the legacy you know, fiat system and Bitcoin. And if we can grow Bitcoin fast enough, big enough, before the politicians even know what happened, Bitcoin can become the default currency. So it's it's no longer people talk about, you know, how can I cash out my Bitcoins for dollars? People are going to be, you know, rushing to the door to cash out their dollars for Bitcoin because Bitcoin has now become the default currency across the world. That's a real possibility, but that real possibility has been hampered by these, you know, so-called core developers that openly say that they think that Bitcoin transactions should be expensive and unreliable on chain. And that's the exact opposite of what we need in order for Bitcoin to gain more adoption around the world. And if you're advocating for things to cost more and be less useful, less people are going to use it. That's just absolute basic economics. And, you know, anybody with any business sense can understand that as well. But uh, many of these core developers don't actually use Bitcoin. For them, it's just some interesting science experiment. And they're not using it for payments. They're not using it to you know, send and receive money. They're not using it for shopping with things. Uh, Many of them don't even have a Bitcoin wallet on their phone. So if uh, they're not using Bitcoin in commerce and they don't have any sort of business or economics background, they shouldn't be making business or economics uh, decisions in regards to Bitcoin. But yet these same people are, are under the impression that Bitcoin needs to be this perfectly distributed system in which everybody can run a full node all the time. And then we have this beautifully elegant decentralized system. But for me, that's uh, you're missing the point. The point is censorship resistance and we only need enough decentralization in order to achieve that censorship resistance. And I guess that's the crux of the matter when it comes to the scaling civil war in, in Bitcoin. Yeah, I think that's a good um, that's a good way to describe it, that centralization or decentralization is not an end in itself. You know, it, it's, there's sort of an element that I see here uh, because the, the people who are in favor of keeping the blocks small, the main argument they make is that the code will be so, uh, or this will be so intensive computationally if the blocks get larger that only very large server farms or, or mining operations will be capable of running the Bitcoin software. And we want as many people as possible, you know, to be running the software on their laptop or whatever. And that's this idea that, so there's no, there's no one with a whole bunch of, you know, power, um, or it's not just whoever has the most computing power is running the software. And and running the software doesn't necessarily mean um, that you are that you like own more Bitcoin than anyone else. Um, but that's the idea that that decentralization is the biggest, most important thing. And I think there's there's an interesting thing I've observed here where it's almost like. There's like an anarcho-capitalist strain that I think you would represent or, you know, whatever you want to call it, but like a, a radical free market strain that's that's decentralize anything that is artificially centralized, that's that's centralized through the use of force. But if there's a free market in something, you know, the market can sustain uh, Walmart or Amazon, which is a very large centralized, you know, pool of resources operating in, in the economy. Um, then there's nothing inherently wrong with that. There are economies of scale and there's always potential competition. I mean, Sears used to be the big winner and Sears got destroyed by Walmart, which Amazon is now destroying. Like as long as you have free and open competition, the bigness of something or the amount of resources concentrated in a particular entity, um, you know, if, if it's on a free market, isn't really something to worry about. Whereas then there's this sort of almost like anarcho-communist strain that's like, no, 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 like, Everything should be centralized. It's not just government monopolies, but it's even like 
anything that's really big on the free market is a threat. And even if it's all voluntary and it's just economies of scale, like everything should be sort of mom and pop style. There's kind of, even though it's not an, it's not an ideological debate, at least openly, there seems to be like a two different theories about the way the world and the economy works, motivating the, the respective fears of the people who want, you know, um, widespread adoption and low transaction fees and fast transactions, even if that means larger server farms and fewer people running the software versus those who are like, no, 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 we don't care how high the fees are and all that stuff. We just want everybody to have the software running on their, on their smartphone. Do you think that's a, a fair assessment? I'm sort of taking like an outsider perspective on this, but what, how would you, what would you say? Yeah, I think that's a pretty darn good uh, assessment. Although I, I take issue with the idea that just because the blocks are allowed to be bigger, and more people are able to use Bitcoin. And yes, it will take a more expensive computer to run a Bitcoin full node. But I think that there will be a, a lot, much larger absolute number of full nodes around the world because you'll have billions of people using Bitcoin as opposed to you know the 10 or 20 million people that are using Bitcoin today. Hmm. Uh, so I think it's the absolute number of full nodes around the world that counts for censorship resistance, not the, the percentage of people that are running these full nodes. And it's also worth pointing out that all these people are so worried about Bitcoin, you know, being censorship resistant money, the people on the small block side of the scaling debate have resorted to massive censorship in order to protect Bitcoin censorship resistant. So if you're using the exact same thing that you're claiming to be opposed of to defend Bitcoin from from being able to be censored, you're a hypocrite and you've missed the entire point of Bitcoin. And that's exactly what's happened here. Well, let me ask you about that. So, so, I think I kind of understand, but I don't entirely. So the idea that that Bitcoin is open source, it's not, the software isn't owned by anyone and um, it's not controlled by any one, you know, party or, or software developer. But yet there is an element of this group uh, called the core devs. Uh, it sounds like you don't like that, <laughs> that name for them. Um, it, like there is a way in which, Tell tell me how it works. How how do they sort of how are they capable of censoring um, this community or who contributes to the software or like do do the core devs control what Bitcoin is? How is it possible that they're able to sort of dictate um, or are they able to dictate you know what happens with the block size and and all these types of things? So I, I don't think I lay all the blame at the feet of the core so called core devs. I think I lay most of the blame with this anonymous figure on the internet that goes by the name of Thamos, and he managed to get control of Bitcoin.org, BitcoinTalk.org, which is the biggest uh, discussion forum, and then he also got a hold of our Bitcoin on Reddit, which is I think the number seven, you know, most popular website in the entire world, and uh, our Bitcoin has more traffic than every single other Bitcoin news website probably combined. And on these websites, you're not allowed to post anything that doesn't toe the the party line when it comes to uh, the small block size and supporting you know this company called Blockstream and and the Bitcoin core developers. And if you post anything that's in opposition to their roadmap or their game plan, your post will lit- literally be deleted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, shame on the guy for for managing them the, that way. I'm granted Bitcoin.org. That's his domain name. He can do whatever he wants with it. But uh, the rest of us can complain about it too. So, and, and that's what we're doing. And uh, you know, I'll, I'll complain or, or say shame to the core developers for not complaining about that too. If Bitcoin is supposed to be, you know, censorship resistant money that's free and open for the entire world to use, discussion about it should be free and open for the entire world to, to participate in as well. It shouldn't be limited uh, only to one, you know, set of people that have one particular viewpoint on that. And uh, I think it's rather disgusting. So I, I'm the CEO of Bitcoin.com. Uh, we have a forum over there as well, and people are welcome to go and post whatever they want. And you know, plenty of people have posted lots of uh, mean and nasty and even untrue <laughs> things about me, but they're allowed to post that. And you know, people can rebut it, and people can figure out what the truth is. And we support free speech, and we support Bitcoin as a, a free and open uh, money for the world to use. So it's a, a very, very stark contrast between the the libertarian, free market, the anarcho-capitalist types, and these people that want to. I feel like there's, you know, a, a lot of these social justice warrior types on the other side, uh, but they only want social justice for the particular point of view that that they agree with, and anybody else should be shouted down and shouldn't have their voice heard at all. It, it seems to be their opinion. Well, that's that's what's really strange. So I, um, 
you know, I've, I've just sort of viewed Bitcoin as like this one great thing. Everybody who loves it kind of has the same idea and in the, in the sort of casual way I've followed it over the last, you know, five years or so. And just this year, when this debate started to, to percolate, or at least I became aware of it, I was like, I really want to educate myself on this. I've never gotten really deep into the tech side of Bitcoin. I'm not a tech guy. So I really dove in and, and a good friend, Steve Patterson, I'm just continually voxing him and asking him to give me more explanations. And I'm going and reading all this stuff and, you know, reading into to all the different people on different sides of this debate. And what I found interesting, I came in with no side, so to speak, and no like proclivity to, I didn't even know what was going on with the debate. I just wanted to understand what are the arguments for small blocks and what are the arguments for large blocks? And I want to know like who's, who's, who's making them and why, what do they say? And what I found was really interesting, it was incredibly hard to find because anytime, like I would go on Twitter and just sort of like, okay, let me see this. People are all hanging out on Twitter and I would ask a question. And if I had said anything like, oh, it seems like larger blocks would enable you to do this. People who want small blocks, why do you not like that? I wouldn't ever get a response other than like name calling and insults. Like it was this huge and it really turned me off. I thought, what is it with the people who want small blocks that it's so rare to find them just making a calm, cogent case for what they want instead of like, you know, you read an article by Roger Ver. He's a, he's a liar and a felon or <laughs> just like, it's crazy. The amount of, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I was actually really shocked. Like, it feels like they're mad that anyone wants to know. Like, I'm just trying to educate myself. I almost feel like people are like mad that I even am, am daring to ask the question, is there anything good about large blocks? <laughs> it's, it's a very bizarre situation that actually caught me by surprise entirely when I started to, to kind of dive into it. Well, you're, you're right. They, they literally don't want people to know. And that's why they're engaged in this massive censorship campaign where you can't even post on what used to be the most popular Bitcoin discussion platforms, you can't even make a post arguing in favor of bigger blocks or your post will literally be deleted. And so even if you know nothing about the scaling debate or any of the internal politics of Bitcoin, if you just know that there's two main sides to this argument and one side is engaging in a massive censorship campaign and the other side supports free and open discussion, that ought to be just about everything you need to know in order to, to pick a side in the debate. Well, unfortunately for us, there is more than the marketplace of ideas to debate this in. So there's a debate going on about, you know, the, the, the way Bitcoin should be handled and the way that it should scale, but there's also market alternatives. So give me your take on not only Bitcoin cash, which is, which was basically a, a hard fork that created, um, you know, everybody who owned Bitcoin now also, or, you know, if you owned it before the, the split also owned Bitcoin cash and Bitcoin cash is basically the same code, but it does have larger blocks and the blocks can increase as the use increases so that you can sort of continue to have the, the lower transaction fees and the, and the higher speed. But there's also this entire world of what are called altcoins. There's, you know, ether, there's, there's a proliferation of these and I know you have argued that those started taking up more and more market share in the crypto world as Bitcoin got slower and more expensive to use. And that if the, the block size had been raised earlier, Bitcoin probably would still have, you know, 80, 90 percent of the market share instead of 50 percent. Um, what do you think of all those? Are you what's called a Bitcoin maximalist? Someone who's like Bitcoin and Bitcoin only. Everything else is a shit coin, you know, and like <laughs> they're all schemes and Ponzi schemes, except for the one true Bitcoin. Or are you, um, you know, excited about all of these alternatives? Um, what, what, do, you, do you see a world where there is not one cryptocurrency to rule them all? There's just tons of them. Or what is your take on that? Yeah. Um, so I think if I had to make some generalizations again, most of the people on the small block or limited one megabyte block side of the scaling argument, they seem to think that anything that's not Bitcoin is a scam and there's no way anybody would ever use anything other than Bitcoin, even if it costs $1,000 per transaction to use Bitcoin. And of course, that's absolute nonsense. People are going to use whatever is the, you know, the cheapest and provides them with the best user experience. So if that's Bitcoin, fantastic. But if it's not Bitcoin, well, people are going to use something that's not Bitcoin. And we've seen that happen right before our eyes. Now, Bitcoin's market share is uh, somewhere in the ballpark of 50% down from the high 90% before the 
the blocks became full and the blocks becoming full make the fees high and make the transactions unreliable. And if something's expensive and unreliable, people are going to seek alternatives. And, and that's happened in, in a big, big way. And it's absolutely heartbreaking for me as you know the first person in the world to start investing in Bitcoin startups and pouring my heart and soul into Bitcoin and being the CEO of Bitcoin.com. A few years ago, Bitcoin had this you know just light years head start over everything else, and almost all of Bitcoin's first mover advantage has been completely destroyed by these people that have no understanding of economics, uh, and they're advocating for things that are actually destructive for Bitcoin's usefulness as money. And lo and lo and behold, when you destroy Bitcoin's usefulness as money, fewer people are using it as money as uh, otherwise would have been. So, so the the idea that hey, look, it doesn't need to be used to you know. In, in all these transactions, it's sort of this settlement layer or something that's used for very large transfers, you know, internationally or whatever. And then you'll have sort of all these, all these sort of layers on top of Bitcoin that can be used for smaller daily transactions. You don't find that to be a, a compelling, a compelling way to sort of have your cake and eat it to say that, you know, the main blockchain will will not be used highly in tons of in tons of transactions the way that you know a visa would but you can build a visa like network on top of it maybe the way that gold is today like yeah you can use gold in transactions but almost nobody does cuz it's clunky it's costly to do so but gold at least if you were in a world where there was still on a gold standard is sort of the thing sitting in the bank and maybe it's used for really large transfers and then we have this cash system on top of it you you would prefer Bitcoin to be both the store of value and the currency. You don't like that idea of having it sort of have another layer on it. Well, uh, I'm I have nothing. I'm not opposed to additional layers at all. But I think the theory that Bitcoin will be the only base layer and everything will be built on top of that is uh, is wrong in theory. And we already know from you know from actual evidence in the real world that it's wrong in practice. Uh, instead of all these layers having been built upon Bitcoin. What's happened instead is all of these new things have been built on altcoins. So we're seeing things like Monero and Zcash and Zcoin and Dash and all these, you know, Ethereum, of course, and all, you know, a thousand and one other ones are gaining more and more market share. More and more people are using it, and none of those are based on Bitcoin. So we have this real-world empirical evidence that instead of things being built on layer two on top of Bitcoin, uh, people are using competitors to Bitcoin in the form of these altcoins. And uh, it's also worth pointing out that if you want to build layer two solutions, uh, the blocks need to be much, 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 much bigger than one megabyte for those too. And so Bitcoin Cash has a huge advantage over uh, one megabyte Bitcoin in, in that department as well. Hmm. So I, I want to ask you about regulation because I've heard a lot of people, even a lot of sort of libertarian types or, or I don't know, maybe they're, they're not libertarian types, but say, hey, look, what to, I want Bitcoin to succeed and that requires good regulation. We can't just we can't just, you know, hope that we can skirt regulation because the regulators are going to come after us. So we got to go lobby and make sure that we get good regulation. What what is your take on that? So I, I suppose I have two answers for you. Uh, one is the the philosophical libertarian purist answer and that these regulations are just a bunch of strangers who have gotten together, written down words on a piece of paper and decided to call it a law. And those people are willing to use violence against other per peaceful people to get them to obey their diktats. And if the people don't obey their diktats, then uh, they'll use violence to, to punish those people. So, of course, I can't support that. That's that's absolute crazy that one small group of people should get together and threaten everybody else around the world with violence if they don't obey them in regards to how they use cryptocurrencies. So, of course, I'm 100 percent completely opposed to that philosophically. From a more practical standpoint um, – there are a bunch of those violent people around the world that will use violence against peaceful people in order to force them to obey their, their rules. And if they don't obey, they'll get hurt. So uh, for any business ban, you have to obey those violent people. So it's, uh, it's beneficial to know exactly what their threats are. And when I say threats, I'm referring to their laws. And so if you know exactly what those threats are, you can abide by them. And then those violent people won't hurt you specifically. And they'll only hurt the people that, that don't obey their threats. Um, so the clearer the laws are and the clearer the threats are, the, the easier it'll be for all of us businessmen to abide by those threats and build, you know, big successful businesses that hopefully in the long run undermine the ability of those violent people to control their, their fellow man. Do you worry about the, you know, government being threatened by Bitcoin? I mean, we have Charlie Schramm going to jail, Ross Ulbricht life sentences for his involvement with Silk Road. 
obviously there are governments around the world that are threatened by this. Um, does that ever worry you? Do you feel like you're at, you know, at risk of going, going back to the slammer, I guess? <laughs> um, of course, of course I'm worried about that. I, I'm more worried about that for the, the world as a whole. And my strategy from day one has been to get Bitcoin to be adopted as currency as quickly and as widely as we possibly can. And if we can, and governments move slowly, politicians move slowly, these bureaucrats move slowly. If we can get so much Bitcoin adoption all over the world so quickly before those people even know what's happened, uh, then they've all been defunded. Uh, They don't have these central banks that can print money at will. Uh, People will be using things like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And uh, instead, the scaling debate has incredibly slowed the rate of growth of Bitcoin adoption. And that's, that's heartbreaking as well. Uh, people always say, oh, Roger, look, you're wrong. Bitcoin's at an all-time new high. It's hitting you know, $5,200 today. You're, you don't know what you're talking about. Why is Bitcoin at an all-time high? Uh, well, Bitcoin could have already been 50000 or maybe $100,000 today if we hadn't run into this scaling roadneck where Bitcoin transactions were costing you know, 5 10 20 even 50 You know, I've paid as much as $100 a a fee uh, per per single transaction because it had a bunch of inputs. Anybody that's running a business that's selling a lot of merchandise, when you go to move all the coins at once, maybe you'll have you know you have a single input from each and every customer. If you have if you sold a thousand widgets, you're going to pay a, at least a thousand dollars in transaction fees there, mm-hmm. and uh, that's the exact opposite of what we want for Bitcoin. In order for Bitcoin to be adopted as money and used in commerce all over the world. It needs to be cheap and reliable, and full blocks cause Bitcoin to be expensive and unreliable. And it's just heartbreaking and mind-numbing that these people openly advocate for Bitcoin to be expensive and unreliable. Yet that's exactly what they've done, and that's exactly what they've succeeded in doing. Well, and uh, I, I guess all the altcoin proponents are, are super excited about that. And I have no problem with altcoins. Use whatever's the most useful to you in your life. And uh, it's interesting all of, all the the vitriol that the small block proponents give to all these altcoins, calling them scams and calling for Vitalik Buterin to be sent to jail for having created Ethereum. And uh, you know, I want to see everybody succeed and, and use things that's that's useful to them in their own lives. Yeah, I, I can't wait for the day when New York City is a die as the fight, not the city itself, but as the financial center of the world, you know, these, these <laughs> Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan coming out and calling Bitcoin a, a scam while his, while his company has, you know, been bailed out and propped up by taxpayers. But I think your point to accelerating that means massive adoption and massive adoption on the consumer level. Someone who's not an ideologue, who's not a, a person who's a tech savvy person or isn't going to, you know, create some company on built on the blockchain. Mass adoption for them means uh, something that's immediately tangibly 10 times better than the alternative. And to, to disrupt something is, is widespread and pretty much unquestioned as cash, as dollars. It's got to be. And I remember the first few times I, I used Bitcoin, it felt like magic. It was just like, you send an email, basically, and it's there. It's basically free. Um, actually, just the other day, I experimented on uh, yours.org. I wanted to go see what it was all about, and I, I transferred some Bitcoin cash into there. And it was like just instant. It was there. It was done. And it had that feeling that's like, this is delightful. This is magical. And I recently saw a friend of mine who's, who's a libertarian guy, free market guy. He was like posted on Facebook. Yeah, so I finally got some Bitcoin and used it. I don't understand what all the hype is about. There was like, you know, I, I, I transferred like 20 bucks and it cost me like $2 and it took like hours. I don't get it. And I, a little part of me died. I was like, but that's not what the experience is supposed to be like. It's possible that it could be basically free and basically instantaneous. Um, so I think that's, I think that's well, well said. And whether it's Bitcoin cash, some other altcoin or some change to, to the legacy Bitcoin change, I think widespread adoption is more important than bank to bank transfers or sort of other, other, you know, I don't know, sort of highly concentrated, but, but low use case, um, scenarios. So I want to wrap up cause I know you are tired. You are up late over there in, in Tokyo. Um, two questions to end with one, there's this really fascinating aspect to the emergence of Bitcoin. And that is, it's almost like, it's almost like the greatest, ideological wealth transfer in the in the world because most of the people 
who are very early in the Bitcoin space, including yourself, were excited about money that was free from government. They're excited for philosophical reasons. And now you have all these people who have become wealthy because of Bitcoin. And so you have all this wealth in the hands of people like yourself who are passionate about free markets. And that is a really interesting sort of, you know, I don't want to say wealth transfer because value has been created. It wasn't taken from, from anyone else, but a shift in, you know, sort of moneyed people, um, people who have a lot of resources and the ability to do things with them. I think there's some amazing implications on that. And actually, I guess I'll just, I'll just spin this into the, the final question. One of those implications is crazy, amazing new projects like one that you're working on to create a new nation. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. No, so to be fair, we're trying to create a new non-nation. And uh, basically, we've already pulled together more than $100 million of private capital. And the lawyers are working to figure out how we can allow the public to participate as well. And uh, I think we'll raise you know, half a billion, a billion, maybe even $2 billion worth of capital. And we'll go shopping around to different governments around the world and try and get uh, one or maybe even multiple of them uh, to sell us a nice chunk of land. But not just sell us the land, but give us uh, sovereignty with the land. And then we'll set up the world's first free society based on the non-aggression principle and voluntarism. And uh, we'll have an initial constitution. And there will be no centralized form of government. There will be no ultimate uh, decision maker. Uh, it will be uh, people dealing with each other on a voluntary basis. And they'll have to figure out how to solve the problems that, that arise when people are you know, living in a place together. So we're going to try something that's never really been tried anywhere in the world ever before. And uh, before the advent of cryptocurrencies, that would have been impossible to do. So what, what is it about cryptocurrency that enables this, that makes this possible? Well, I guess there's two things. One is that, you know, I think we're starting to see the first wave of uh, cryptocurrency billionaires uh, come into mm -hmm. existence as the price goes up here. And uh, so these people are all, as you mentioned, you know, the, the vast majority of them are hardcore libertarian, voluntarist, you know, anarcho-capitalist types. And, uh, and interestingly enough, the vast majority of the people on the small block side of the scaling debate don't seem to actually hold very many Bitcoins at all, uh, whereas most of the people on the big block side hold uh, quite a few Bitcoins and use Bitcoin often. But uh, not to get too sidetracked, so you have all these libertarians now that have a bunch of money, and then you also have this amazing payment network in the form of cryptocurrencies that allow you to crowdfund money from people all over the world uh, to do these sorts of things that wouldn't have been possible before the advent of, of cryptocurrencies. So uh, both those things together, you have a bunch of libertarians with a bunch of money, and you have a payment system that allows them to pool their money together. Uh, that makes for some really powerful, uh, powerful tools to to bring more freedom to the world. And I also imagine, a, um, you know, let's say you you go and and live in this non nation, and you've got whatever you know country you're from, or, or you know people other countries get mad and, and they want to you know shut down your bank accounts or your access to their capital markets or whatever. Um, you don't have to worry about that with cryptocurrency. You can move money in and out of any country, anywhere in the world, whether or not their government likes you. <laughs> and that's really that's really powerful as well. How can people stay up to date um, with this project and with you more generally? Where should they go to, to check out some some information? Sure, two, two websites. So on the Bitcoin front, of course, uh, Bitcoin.com. We have absolutely everything you need over there. You can get your first Bitcoin wallet. You can buy Bitcoin with a credit card. You can do uh, read the latest news. You can do absolutely everything over there. Uh, and then if you're interested in this uh, project to start the world's first uh, non-country, uh, it's freesociety.com. You can go over there and sign up for our mailing list to keep up to date with the, all the latest developments over there. So Bitcoin.com and freesociety.com. Roger, this has been absolutely awesome. Thank you for giving me a full hour of your time. Now go catch up on some sleep so you can continue to uh, build the free world. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Isaac. You bet. Hey, I want to tell you about two other podcasts real quick. The first is called Forward Tilt. Check it out. Five to 10 minute episodes about specific ideas to improve your personal and professional life. Basic thoughts, uh, concepts, 
just a single one in each episode boiled down real quick. If you like that five to 10 minute format, check it out wherever it is that you subscribe and listen to podcasts it's called Forward Tilt. Pretty good if I do say so myself. The second one is called Office Hours. It's TK Coleman, frequent guest of this podcast, and myself. And we spend about 30 minutes every week answering specific questions from specific people. Could be you if you send us a question about success in the workplace, primarily primarily professional success for people sort of early in their careers, but it actually covers a pretty broad range. Anything from how to ask for a raise, how to impress somebody, how to know what kind of work to do, how to what to what to do when someone won't respond to your emails, anything like that. It's full of wit and wisdom that is characteristic of conversations with TK. Check out Office Hours and Forward Tilt if you like the kind of stuff on this show. Thanks for listening.